This conference has to go beyond Brussels because for this conference to succeed, we want to reach what some call the silent majority. We want to hear from European citizens in their full diversity. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen speaking after she and other EU leaders finally signed an agreement to launch a conference on the future of Europe after months of wrangling over who should lead it and what it should do. There will be plenty of time for us to delve into the conference after it actually starts in May and runs for a year. But we will be exploring the future of Europe this week in another way as we look in-depth at Germany's big election year, which will mark the end of the Merkel era, and we'll ask what comes next. And later, you'll learn more about an EU institution that's not so well known, but hasn't been short of controversy lately. That's the European Economic and Social Committee. We'll hear from its president. But first, the EU Confidential crew is longing for the days when we can travel once again. We're sure that's the same for many of you. So we decided to take an imaginary trip together to and around Germany. Damen und Herren, im Namen der Deutschen Bahn und EU Confidential begrüßen wir Sie herzlich im Intercity Express 611 auf der Fahrt nach Stuttgart Hauptbahnhof. So, it's a big year in Germany. Or, as it's called in German, Superwahljahr. Ein Superwahljahr. Ein Superwahljahr in Deutschland. A Superwahljahr literally means Super Election Year. It culminates in September with a general election that will choose a successor to Angela Merkel and a new German government. That election will bring the curtain down on 16 years of Merkel and usher Germany and Europe into an uncertain future. Before then, there are lots of key moments along the way that will determine who takes charge of the EU's biggest economy, most populous nation and most influential voice in Brussels. Today, we're going to guide you through the Superwahljahr. We're going to go on a journey from regional elections this weekend to the big one in September, taking in some of the key people and issues along the way. We thought we'd do it as a virtual train journey through the political landscape. So come with us, settle in on our Trans-Germany Express. Sehr geehrte Fahrgäste, Wir bitten Sie, Ihre Schuhe nicht auf den Sitzpolstern abzulegen. Vielen Dank. Hey, it's a German train. Keep your feet off the seats. Now, our final destinations are Berlin and Brussels, but our first stop is Stuttgart, capital of Baden-Württemberg, one of two regional states holding elections this weekend. And let's meet Politico's Lawrence Gerke, who's been out and about in Baden-Württemberg ahead of the election. Hi, Lawrence. Hi, Andrew. Okay, first just give us a quick sense of Baden-Württemberg. Okay, the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear Baden-Württemberg is that the people there have a reputation of being very fiscally conservative. Uh, they don't <laughs> very tactfully put. Yep. They don't like to spend more money than they earn even over short periods of time. 
The second thing would be cars. It's the center of the German automobile industry with Mercedes and Porsche headquartered in Stuttgart, the state capital. And the third thing would be that Baden-Württemberg produced the first green state premier in Germany uh, in 2011. That's Winfried Kretschmann, who's now 72 years old and running to remain in office. Alle Flügel, alle haben gesagt, Winfried, du musst es doch mal machen. Auch aus der Bevölkerung habe ich... He's considered to be a quite conservative Green. He has been governing with a conservative CDU. Things have been going relatively smoothly because he's not a radical Green and he appeals to a large majority of the population. Even if they don't vote green, they still tend to like him very much. Mm. So you were out and about in Stuttgart. What did people tell you were the, the big issues? What were the things that were on their minds? Well, maybe unsurprisingly, almost anyone I talked to started talking about the pandemic and how they have grown frustrated with the lockdown that started in November and got fiercer in December. And it's still not over. And a big topic also is the slow pace at which Germany has been vaccinating its people. Although I should probably mention that the people didn't blame the state government. They put the blame on Brussels largely. But it does appear, Lawrence, and this is partly because of some things that happened after your trip to Baden-Württemberg, that the CDU, Angela Merkel's party, is being hit by this crisis, right? It's, it's not doing so well in the polls in Baden-Württemberg and nationally. Can you give us a very quick recap of, of the scandal that's, that's played into that? Last Friday and over the weekend, a scandal unfolded in Berlin, including members of the German parliament, the Bundestag, having made a profit off of brokering contracts for coronavirus face masks. And two of them, one of Angela Merkel's CDU, and one of the Bavarian sister party CSU stepped down. And the scandal is now probably going to affect the election this Sunday in Bad Württemberg as well. Right. And what's the latest from the polls right now? How does it look like the election is going to turn out in Baden-Württemberg? Uh, well, according to the latest polls, the Greens have now widened their lead. They stand at 33%, whereas the CDU stands at 26%. Now, there's also a state election just up the track, if you like, in the state of Rhineland-Palatinate or Rhineland-Pfalz, a smaller state, but not unimportant. What do you think the main thing to watch for is there? I mean, again, I guess it's partly the CDU's performance, right? Yes, it's the CDU's performance. And while the election in Baden-Württemberg attracts more attention, Rhineland-Palatinate would actually be quite a prestigious win for the CDU because the state used to be governed by Helmut Kohl, who later became chancellor. The race is also more narrow in that state. It's currently a so-called traffic light coalition made up of the Social Democrats, the Free Democrats and the, the Greens. As you say, I think the main thing is if the CDU could come in first, that would obviously be a boost for them and for their leader. A new leader, Armin Laschet. Okay, Lawrence, we're going to leave you uh, in Stuttgart and, and move on to our next destination. Thanks very much. Thank you. Liebe Fahrgäste, in Kürze erreichen wir Düsseldorf Hauptbahnhof. So we've made it to Dusseldorf, 
on the banks of the Rhine to meet up with our old friend Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Guten Tag. And we've come here because Dusseldorf is the base of uh, Armin Laschet, uh, one of the two people probably with the best shot at succeeding Angela Merkel. He's the state premier of North Rhine-Westphalia and recently elected leader of the CDU. Stimmen, damit ist Armin Laschet gewählt. Er hat die Mehrheit, die absolute Mehrheit der abgegebenen Matt, Stimmen. do you want to just revisit one of your greatest hits? Uh, give us a 30-second summary of Armin Laschet. And the time starts now. So Laschet is about 59, 60 years old. He comes from the town of Aachen, which is also where Charlemagne came from, or or lived anyway. And uh, he's more on the Merkel wing of the CDU. He's not a hardline conservative. He's not a kind of economic liberal conservative. He's more of the kind of social consciousness uh, variety. And he is somebody who is expected to govern if he is to become chancellor very much in the mold of Angela Merkel. That's also true of foreign policy. It's true of Europe. He's a former MEP. Okay, you've over you've overshot already uh, there. I think I you had too much far, historical though. background at the start there. But anyway, well, I good. had to get in Charlemagne. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Okay, we get the picture, I think. And so Laschet is basically one of, of two people really with the best shot at being Germany's next chancellor. And the other one is Markus Söder, state premier of Bavaria, leader of the Christian Social Union. So are you ready to give us 30 seconds of Markus Söder? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, three, two, one, go. So Söder is a gregarious, larger-than-life politician. He's somebody who likes to dress up in wild costumes during the carnival season. He's a politician that everybody seems to like in Germany. He comes from a working-class background. And even when he's made mistakes, he somehow has managed to recover from them very quickly. And on paper, his record during the COVID pandemic is very similar to Laschet's, in fact. But people are so far more forgiving of uh, Söder than they have been of Laschet in the polls. Okay, so this decision about who will be the chancellor candidate of the conservative bloc of the CDU, CSU. As far as I understand it, right, there's no real written procedure for how this happens. It's a sort of behind closed doors decision. So when do you think the decision will be made and, and what do you think will determine who gets the nod? That's right. I mean, it's very papal-like in a way. And uh, in keeping with that Catholic tradition, they've said that a decision will be made by Pentecost. And yeah, it's very much up in the air. I think that uh, these scandals that uh, Lawrence mentioned before are really going to affect the outcome in the sense that it seems to be pretty bad news for Laschet in particular, uh, even though Soda's party is, is also involved. But Laschet has the disadvantage in the mask affairs, as being called here, of having been embroiled in his own sort of version of this a couple of months ago when it emerged that a local textile company in North Rhine-Westphalia was given a contract to make masks for the state and that company also had a, a contract with Laschet's son. So there, there was a direct link between Laschet's son and this company, and that it's also raised a lot of eyebrows, although there's been no suggestion of any uh, criminal wrongdoing or anything of that nature. 
Normally, the CDU would have right of first refusal for the uh, chancellor run. But in this case, because Söder is so much more popular and because of this scandal, it really is, is very much up in the air at this stage. One of the things, if you look at the national polls at the moment, the, the CDU, CSU are, are so far ahead. I mean, it does look almost certain that whoever becomes their candidate for chancellor is at least the red hot favourite to be the next chancellor. But it's an election. You never know what can happen. Who do you think is also worth keeping an eye on? So as it stands, the most viable candidates right now are Olaf Scholz, who is the candidate for the Social Democrats. He's also the current finance minister. Uh, He's a very experienced politician, a national figure, but also was the mayor of Hamburg for many years. He's somebody pretty much every German knows and trusts. He's seen as a moderate. His problem, though, is that the party behind him, in particular the leadership of the Social Democrats, is much more to the left than he is. The real kind of surprise over the past couple of years in Germany, as many listeners will recall, has been the Greens. They have supplanted the SPD as the second kind of largest party, at least in in the polls now. And they have a good chance, I think, of joining whatever constellation emerges after the September elections. And the Greens have two candidates. They haven't said who their lead candidate will be. It might be a woman, Annalena Baerbock, or it could be a man, Robert Habeck. I suspect that they will go with Baerbock. The the rest of the field is made up of the far-right AFD, which is currently the third largest party in the German parliament, in the Bundestag. That's unlikely to be the case this year because they're too far back. They're polling in the 10% range compared to the roughly 13% they got the last time. And then you have the left party, the Linke, as it's called in Germany, which is sort of the vestige of the old East German Communist Party. And they generally also will get around 8%, 9%. And that's been pretty steady. And then you have the Free Democrats, the FDP, the German Liberal Party, which for much of uh, West Germany's post-war history was the kingmaker in German politics as the junior party. They seem to be back on the upswing in the polls. Okay, Matt, thanks a lot. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. And we'll catch up with you again later, but now we're heading east. Sehr verehrte Fahrgäste, in Kürze erreichen wir Magdeburg Hauptbahnhof. Next stop on our virtual train journey is the state of Saxony-Anhalt or Sachsen-Anhalt in eastern Germany. It's holding a state election on June the 6th. And we're stopping off in the state capital of Magdeburg. And joining us here is our climate reporter, Kalina Orashakov. Hi, Kalina. Hi, Andrew. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. To my Magdeburg train station. Yeah, thank you very much. It's uh, amazing how realistic it is. We've kind of used this as a, as a metaphorical stop just to talk about some of the, the election campaign issues. Let's start by talking a bit about climate and about, about policy. What are the big issues in the election and how might they be affected by whoever wins the election? Thanks, Andrew, for that. And I think um, Magdeburg is a perfect stop 
to have this discussion because as many of our listeners may know or perhaps don't know but will know is that Saxony-Anhalt is one of the states that used to be a big and still has a big coal industry. So it's been very much in the in the focus of German policies over the recent years to drop coal and move to greener and renewable energy sources. So that's been a big issue for the current government. It's an issue that the current government is actually struggling with. And it's part of that broader debate in Germany that will be an issue also during the elections and in the run-up to the elections on how to make this green energy shift, the Energiewende, that Germany pioneered um, an economic and industrial and a social success. Mm. And so I think states like Saxony-Anhalt um, really have forced government parties as well as um, the opposition to tackle this question of social and just transition, what happens to those people, to the regions that will be negatively affected, at least initially, from this green shift. So does that mean more just in, in what sense, like fairer to workers, giving workers a kind of better deal if they're affected by this? Or how would that kind of manifest itself? That as well as just households, because we have this year seen a major policy change. So from January The German government has introduced an emissions trading scheme for fuels that are used in buildings and transport sector that has already, according to German media, caused cost increases, which are usually passed on to people living in the houses, to renters. Mm. And so there's a major concern that the, the cost implications of environmental policy is going to hurt the most vulnerable. So now you see this competition between parties trying to establish themselves as either the true green voice or the, the market-conscious voice that tries to combine green with economic prospects, which you see with the conservatives to some extent, or the SPD trying to establish itself as industry-friendly to some extent, but also caring about the people, especially those that might be left behind. And so I think you will, especially in the social and individual implications, how do you live a green life, you will see um, major differences and you will see those discussions around the Greens being the party of bans and prohibitions versus the Conservatives and others being more market-oriented and let the market sort itself out, which of course it hasn't so far. Okay, one last thing, because this just reminds me that sometimes we talk, you know, Germany is very good at, at talking about the Energiewende, but there's quite often the accusation they don't really practice what they preach, right, when it comes to emissions targets and, and some of these other concrete measurements as to whether they're, they're making the necessary progress that they're not. Is that a fair criticism? And, and could the election make any change to that? I would argue it's a, it's a very fair statement just based on the, the government's performance. I think thanks to the pandemic and the pandemic implications for a slowdown in economic activity, you had the government manage its 2020 climate target, but literally just because the country was shut down and emissions fell. So that's not really a, a victory because it, it underlines that the structural changes that are necessary to really get rid of fossil fuels and the pollution that ensues have not been taken. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Kalina. We're going to leave you in, in Magdeburg and uh, head on to Berlin. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Liebe Fahrgäste, willkommen im Regionalexpress 1 auf der Fahrt nach Berlin Hauptbahnhof. Okay, and now we're heading for the Hauptstadt to meet up with Matt again, talk about the big day, the general election day, Sunday, September the 26th. And let's just break down how this all works, right? Because, Matt, the Germans don't actually elect a chancellor directly, right? That's right. It's a classical parliamentary 
democracy in the sense that they elect the parliament and the parliament then elects the uh, chancellor. Uh, so we should know we will know by that evening, by the evening of September 26th, who the winners are. Right. And obviously, as we've said, the polls at the moment point to a coalition emerging between the Christian Democrat camp and the Greens. Is there any other realistic permutation that might, you know, might cause a surprise? Yeah, I, I'm more and more thinking there there could be a surprise because, you know, as as we were discussing before, the, the decline in the CDU-CSU camp recently, if they cannot make up that ground, they really open themselves up to a challenge from the left of the political spectrum where you could see, for example, a combination of the Greens, the Social Democrats, and the left party. Now, that would be very controversial for a number of reasons, even within you know those three parties. But it is a possibility. It can't be ruled out. And I think it is something that, you know, many people in the Greens would prefer. Many people in the uh, SPD would, would certainly prefer. And there is precedent for it. So that is definitely a possibility. If the FDP continues to do well and, you know, it, it gets above the kind of, you know, 10% where they are now, you could also see a possibility for them to go into coalition with the Greens and the CDU-CSU, which is something that they tried uh, after the last election, and it famously crashed and burned at the last minute. But, you know, that also can't be ruled out yet. So the one constellation I do not think that we will see is another grand coalition, as it's called, between the the center-right and the uh, social democrats, even though it's popular with the general public, most people in those parties believe that that coalition has run its course. Yeah. And we should also say that although this election will mark the end of the Merkel era, she may stick around for a while, right? Because these coalition negotiations can take some time. Right. At least in a kind of caretaker role. And that really will be the the big fundamental change that we haven't discussed really is, is that Merkel will be leaving meaning that Germany will be heading into a completely new era. And as we don't know which parties are going to be leading the government, we don't really know what personalities will be in positions of power then. So it is a uncharacteristically vague moment in German history where a country that likes to plan everything out to the last T is looking ahead over the next six months and, and doesn't know who's going to be running things. Okay, right. Thanks, Matt. We'll leave it there and take uh, one last trip on the uh, metaphorical train to Brussels. Liebe Fahrgäste, in wenigen Minuten erreichen wir unseren Endbahnhof Brüssel Nord. Okay, so here we are back in Brussels with our own Brussels politics reporter, Hans von der Burchardt. He's the guy who keeps an eye on EU politics and how they relate to German politics. Hi, Hans. Hello. Hey there. So, listen, uh, obviously these are big elections in Germany, but they obviously have a big impact or will have a big impact in the EU here in Brussels. There will be a vacuum. No one can instantly replace Angela Merkel, who will have been in power for 16 years and really came to kind of dominate the European political scene. So what are the implications of that and who might fill that vacuum? 
as you rightly say, there will be this vacuum. And the question is really how that will play out or if there's really a country trying to fill that vacuum. Many people are saying that the French will, of course, try to get in there. Although, as it has been recently pointed out to me by Daniel Kaspari, the head of the CDU-CSU group in the European Parliament, the French will have their own elections coming up uh, in 2022. And there might actually be a chance that this vacuum won't be so big as people expect, because just uh, the French might be very uh, occupied with their own problems at home. Right. So one thing, if we look at the opinion polls now, it does seem quite likely that the next German government will have a strong green participation. Absolutely, yeah. How do you think that will impact at the EU level? Yeah, that is actually an interesting point because people are talking a lot about this here in Brussels and uh, this likely participation of the Greens in the government will probably shift some of the German positions when it comes, for example, to Nord Stream 2, where the Greens have been very, very critical. So they could see that the German position might flip. And, and another issue where people really expect that the Green participation in, in, in the government could change things is to EU-Turkey relations, because here... The German government has always been a main promoter of a softer approach towards Turkey. But the Green Party in Germany has taken a different stance. They are much more harsh on Turkey. Mm, interesting. Any other implications you think that uh, people here in Brussels will be watching out for from the election? Well, I guess the main question is, of course, who is going to become the chancellor candidate for the Christian Democratic Party. And there will might already see some pre-decision this weekend with a regional election that uh, yeah, might decide whether Amit Laschet has actually any realistic chances to, to become the chancellor candidate. If he becomes the next chancellor, I think people expect a lot of continuation of the, the Merkel's policies in many areas and therefore also um, a continuation of the good relations that uh, Berlin has at the moment with the Berlamont, the, the commission headquarter and the team von der Leyen. If Markus Söder, the Bavarian premier, if he becomes the chancellor candidate and then gets elected, that could lead to quite some disruption uh, in relations between von der Leyen's team and Berlin because we know that Söder has been very critical of von der Leyen recently. He has uh, publicly blamed her for being responsible for this uh, slow and bumpy rollout of coronavirus vaccines. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, we've obviously seen that, that Marcus Söder is, is capable of reinventing himself to an extent. So perhaps he would, um, you know, settle into a good working relationship with uh, Ursula von der Leyen when he had to. That's great. Hans, thanks very much. Uh, you're actually going to stay with us here in Brussels for our next item. But for the moment, thanks a lot. You're welcome. And that's the terminus, Endstation, as they say, uh, for our metaphorical train. Thanks for sticking with it. I think it just about managed to stay on the tracks. But of course, the real journey is just beginning and we'll be following it every step of the way on politico.eu and EU Confidential. Check out our preview stories for this weekend's elections on the website and our coverage of the results on Sunday night. And stay tuned to the podcast in the months ahead. We may even have something special on general election night. More details to come near the time. We'll be back in just a moment with Hans and the president of the European Economic and Social Committee, Christa Schwenk. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium intelligence service, Politico Pro, 
is designed for policy professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? EU Confidential listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.eu with the code CONFIDENTIAL. Again, that's pro at politico.eu. Now it's time to turn our focus to an EU institution that not everyone has heard of, but it will cost European taxpayers 150 million euros this year and it employs some 700 staff. The European Economic and Social Committee, or the EESC, has been around since 1957. It gathers the opinions of employers, trade unionists and representatives of civil society to collectively weigh in on EU legislation. But recent scandals have some wondering whether the institution is still relevant, or at least worth the cost compared to its overall impact. We put some of those criticisms to the new president of the EESC, Krista Schwing, who you'll hear from in just a moment. But first, let's bring in our Brussels politics reporter, Hans von der Burkhardt, to set up some of the big issues facing the EESC. Hi, Hans. Hi, Andrew. So, Hans, you've been doing a lot of reporting on the EESC over the past few months. Before we dive into some of the issues, can you just give us a potted summary of what the EESC actually is? How does it function? What does it actually do? Sure. So when the EESC was created in 1957, the idea was actually to create an institution that reaches out to European society and makes sure that the views of employers, trade unions and civil society organizations are taken into account when drafting new EU laws. And so every five years, EU countries appoint representatives of these three groups to serve as members in the EESC, where they come together to discuss their views on new laws and then they forge a compromise between employers, trade unions and civil society organizations that is acceptable to all of them. But this compromise so this is then sent to the Commission and or the European Parliament as a non-binding opinion, and that is important to remember, that they can take into account when shaping new, new EU laws or what is actually most often the case, they simply ignore this opinion. Okay, so moving on to some of your reporting on the committee and uh, the criticisms levelled at it. And one of those is that for the millions of euros spent each year, it appears to lack real impact on steering EU legislation. Yeah, so when you talk to lawmakers or commission officials here in Brussels, you mostly get actually two reactions. The first one is this description of the ESC as a zombie committee, as uh, Czech MEP Tomasz Szydowski put it, because this committee was created back in the 1950s based on a similar institution in France. And back then, it probably made sense to ensure that the freshly created European Union properly consults civil society before adopting new laws. The problem, however, is that the EU has massively evolved since then, the European Parliament today has much more power and influence, or also at the same time the, the European Commission, it is much more actively reaching out to business, trade unions or NGOs before even presenting new law. So the real show, the, the, the policy making that happens elsewhere. So And on top of that, this institution has never been really reformed since the 1950s. Hence this term, zombie committee. Its purpose, many say, has long died, but it's a, an institution that just 
lives on. And then there's the second reaction uh, that you sometimes get from EU officials. And that's actually, I would say it's even worse because people like senior MEPs I spoke to, and those are the people who should normally consult ESC opinions. They tell me they can't really comment on the ESC or what they're doing, whether it's good or bad, because they don't really know what they do. Okay, so no shortage of criticism, that's for sure. So earlier in the week, you spoke to the EESC's new president, Christa Schwing. Before we get on to her responses to the criticism, criticism leveled at the organization. Uh, what do we need to know about her? Christa Schwenk is from Austria. She has been a member of the ESC for 22 years now and was elected as its president in October for a two and a half year term. Outside the ESC, she works for the Austrian Federal Economic Chamber. And as you mentioned, Andrew, I put this question of relevance to her several times. And this was her main response. We are very well aware that this is an issue that we do not and I put it very bluntly that we do not sell our opinions enough. So what we intend to do is to make members aware that having adopted an opinion is just halfway through. Then the real work starts because you really have to go and convince your interlocutors and tell them what you have in hands. And I think this is something where we haven't been active enough, where we haven't communicated enough. And I hope this will change in the future. Also, the Conference on the Future of Europe will be, of course, a good occasion for us to present views of organized civil society and to fulfill our bridge building function. Because I think that it's not only one way transporting from the ground to Europe what's going up there, but also the way back. So I think explaining Europe to citizens will also be part of the exercise. She also says that the EEC fills a gap in the Commission's own consultation process. I think that this is the perfect way for organized civil society to express the concerns which are not taken up by the European institutions. And this is why we do them. Either they are come in at the very early stage from the legislative process, or we have points where we think that Europe should do something, and then we put these forward. And uh, it's a way of saying, listen, Commission, this is something where we think you should go and become active. Okay, so a main criticism of the committee, of course, is that even though these opinions seem to have so little impact, the EESC costs uh, so much money. Yes, and I asked the president about that because the EESC's costs have been ballooning from 108 million in 2006 to 150 million this year, even though the relevance remains arguably low and the number of issued opinions has actually decreased over the years. So this is how the president defended the increase in costs. DEC is not only consisting and contributing via its uh, opinions, and this is something that I kindly ask you to bear in mind. We are carrying out quite a lot of uh, initiatives just to mention... She goes on to mention civil society events they organize and fact-finding missions. I mean, participatory democracy costs money. It's not simply dividing the whole budget via the number of opinions. And these are activities that really started 2017, 2018. So I think there has been a push towards new and further grassroots level gathering issues that we were devoted to. Okay, and that's not the only issue where spending has, well, raised questions. Is that correct? That's right. ESC members, they receive 290 euros in allowances for every day that they participate in at least one meeting at the committee, independent of how long that actually takes. So these 290 euros are supposed to cover hotel costs or restaurant costs for ESC members who come to Brussels from across Europe, let's say Italy or Romania. 
And they get paid out on top of the reimbursement of any travel costs like train or flight that members have for coming to Brussels or participating in other ESC events that uh, take place across or beyond the EU. And there was already actually a lot of criticism of these allowances before the pandemic because ESC members usually already get a regular salary. They get paid from their employer, for example, a business association. And on top of that, some of them already live in Brussels and they clearly don't need any hotel costs or, or any of this um, allowances, actually. But since COVID restricted all of us to homeworking, this whole allowance scheme has become even more questionable because the ESC decided that members could continue to claim the 290 euros of daily allowances for participating in virtual events, despite obviously no need to cover any hotel costs uh, or something like that. Okay, so basically, it's almost like a, it sounds like anyway, a kind of cash incentive to take part in these um, online meetings. I, I can only say I'm sure a lot of our listeners wish uh, they were on the same deal for all the Zoom meetings they have to take uh, part in. So how has the EESC responded to concerns about this issue, the issue of the allowances specifically? So Schwenk said even though this decision has now been active for about a year, it's still temporary and that they are working on a new model when it comes to participating in remote meetings. If you see daily allowances, this is not only for reimbursement for covering costs incurred, This is also for the time a member spends. And mm. don't forget that a members that participating in a meeting is just the very end of the process. So what members need to do is to prepare themselves. They need to read the documents. They need to prepare amendments. They need to talk to experts in order to gather input. Then they have this meeting. So what we thought at the beginning is the pandemic will be something which is short. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. What we are working on now is to find a sustainable solution. And this we will have to discuss with the council. Okay, now that's not the only controversial recent story around the EESC. Some members of the committee have also been the subject of some pretty troubling allegations. What can you tell us about these? And then we'll hear what the president has to say about them. So for more than two years, the ESC has been rocked by an affair involving one of its senior members, Jacek Krawczyk, a Polish business representative who was until last fall the president of the ESC's employers group and was even on track to become the overarching ESC president, the job that instead went now to Krista Schwang. Krawczyk stands accused of psychological harassment and serious misconduct, and these allegations have been substantiated by an investigation of the EU's anti-fraud office, Olaf, and they've also led to the opening of criminal proceedings by Belgian prosecutors against Krawczyk. The main problem that the scandal highlighted is that the ESC had no effective rules in place to deal with such allegations, to protect the victims and to impose potential sanctions for persons accused of mobbing or other misbehavior. And this led to an extraordinary and embarrassing situation where the previous EEC leadership decided that Krawczyk should be suspended from all management function, in which he is responsible for dealing with stuff, etc. But the Polish businessman just ignored that decision and carried on, because as it appeared, there was no real legal basis to force him to quit. And he was even appointed by the Polish government for another five-year term as ESC member, even though he no longer is the employers group president. So this has been an affair that threw the ESC into chaos and caused a severe reputational damage for the institution, even though, of course, one has to add that Krawczyk until today denies these allegations against him, and it's now up to the Belgian authorities to deliver a potential verdict on them. So... 
Schweng did not want to comment on the specific allegations. But we should say that a big success of her young presidency has been changing the EESC code of conduct to try to prevent future cases from arising and implement strengthened tools to punish people if they do. We have now a code of conduct in place which calls for a committee that applies the highest ethical standards, which has sanctions in place, provides for financial transparency, and looks that we have instruments in place in order to really have a work environment that is good for everybody. When I asked her about the enforceability of these codes, here's what she had to say. We didn't have this kind of sanctions in place, and this we have changed. So I, I guess, yes, that we can enforce them because beforehand it was just a decision, but not really on the, the, the right legal base. Okay, so you've talked about the questions, about the organization's relevance. You've laid out the concerns about its costs. We've looked at the serious harassment allegations against one member of the committee. Where does the president point to as a bright spot in terms of its contribution to EU lawmaking? Here Schweng referred to one of the committee's most recent contributions, which is work that the committee has done on the Next Generation EU Fund, which is the Commission's 750 billion coronavirus recovery plan. We've been very, from a er very early stage on working on the long-term financial perspectives of the European Union. So we've been working on the Next Generation EU. We've calling for upholding the rule of law on the one hand, And on the other hand, calling for financial, substantial financial means from the European level in order to facilitate the green and digital transition without leaving anybody behind. And in the end, Schweng believes that the opinions generated by our organization reflect an important and perhaps overlooked diversity. The Commission is doing a lot of outreach activities, which is true. They are consulting a lot. But who replies to these consultations? Two-thirds come from Western Europe, come from old European countries. We have members from all walks of life and from all 27 member states, which makes, of course, the discussion richer, also the finding a compromise uh, more challenging. But nevertheless, we are much more representative than just a consultation which is thrown out to everybody and then you don't know really what's happening there. I think this is the main difference. Okay, Hans, well, I think we've heard uh, both sides of the story there. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks very much. Thanks, Andrew. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And remember that you can always send us feedback or ideas directly to podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.